Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more Hemisync podcasts, such as Episode 8 with Dean Reagan, podcasts that aren't necessarily associated with any particular Hemisync product, but simply feature fascinating guests and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, please consider joining our exclusive Patreon page and get some great discounts on Hemisync products in the bargain. Thanks for watching. Hello, and thanks for joining us. At the time of this recording, we are currently in the middle of the global COVID-19 pandemic. I personally am in the middle of uh, day 14 of my quarantine and day four of what I hope is just a cold. Also, badly needed the haircut. Um, I certainly hope you all are in good health. And if you're not, I wish you a speedy recovery. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation today with Peter Russell. Um, it should serve as a respite from some of the seemingly constant angst many of us are currently facing. Um, today we'll be discussing the natural state of mind, or the state of being, as Peter calls it, um, which is quite different from uh, the everyday reality many of us are currently experiencing right now, um, and even quite different from what most of us experience um, in more normal times. So uh, Peter is a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, um, and of the World Business Academy, the Feinhorn Foundation. He's also an honorary member of the Club of Budapest. He's the author of many books, including The Global Brain, The TM Technique, The Brain Book, The Creative Manager, The Consciousness Revolution, Waking Up in Time, and From Science to God. Uh, Peter is also a teacher, a futurist, and a noted uh, keynote speaker. He has a postgraduate degree in computer science and studied mathematics and theoretical physics while at Cambridge. So without further ado, uh, I give you Peter Russell. So Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Um, so you have an interesting background in that um, you started off being interested in consciousness early on, kind of dabbling with you know an interest in out-of-body experience, um, pulsating lights, hyperventilating, but also married that with an interest in science and mathematics, which ultimately take you or uh, took you to Cambridge where you know you basically scoured the academic landscape going through you know the sciences, chemistry, physics, biology, um, looking for explanations to how consciousness works and you know kind of coming up unsatisfied. Um, can you talk a bit about sort of that background, that experience and how you kind of got started in this uh, exploration of consciousness? Yes, I think, as you say, I was always interested in consciousness as a child. I was exploring it in various ways. And I was a math mathematician. I was good at mathematics, good at school, went to university studying mathematics, and that took me into theoretical physics and other sciences. And these two things were sort of in parallel. And then there came this point when I realized, however much maths I did, however much science I did, it was never going to answer the question of why is there consciousness in the first place, you know, according to modern science, we, we should all just unfold as it does, but almost like um, an automation, like why, why, do, why are we aware? Why aren't we just biological robots? So that, yeah. that was the question. How come there is consciousness in the cosmos? And that, that took me, I started going to psychology, but that didn't answer it. And I realized you know, the people who were interested in this were the mystics, the people who spent their lives exploring consciousness firsthand. 
um, they were the ones who sort of, that was the way to understand this question of why was there consciousness? And yeah. something, again, you know, as a teenager, I was exploring this. In those days, it was called the mind-body problem of how did the mind come out of the body. These days, it's called the hard problem of consciousness, which in philosophy, which is basically, how is it that you know, a bunch of conscious neurons in the brain give rise to the experience of our experience of being conscious, which is totally non-material. And nobody has come up with an explanation for that. People have tried, but nobody's had satisfactory explanation of how inanimate right. matter can ever give rise to experience. And so just to expand on that, so folks know what we're talking about, um, you're basically, you know, going back to kind of our basic sensory perceptions, right? So everything from what we see to what we hear, we we think that we're seeing and hearing it directly, but we're really not. And science can't explain how we're seeing and hearing, but it's safe to say that they're basically constructed images or constructed sounds. Um, it's not the thing in itself as, right. know, I guess, Kant would say. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I mean, take the example, you know, you, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at your computer screen now or whatever. Right. Or looking at yeah. light is coming in through the eyes and it's you know, hitting, activating the retina, which sends electrical impulses down to the brain and the brain very cleverly processes it, analyzes it, puts it all together and comes up with its picture of what is out there. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, as you say, it's a really convincing picture. And it's so good that we think we're seeing the world directly. But yeah. what we're actually experiencing is the, the image of the world that appears in the mind. And it's the same with sound. I mean, you're hearing sound now. There's just air molecules in the air are vibrating and hitting the eardrums. And the brain, again, analyzes all that and integrates it into this picture of the world. So right. the big the, the question is, because science is beginning to understand all this processing. I say just beginning to understand this processing, you know, what's actually happening when we see something or when we hear something. And that's sometimes called the easy problem of consciousness. You know, it's not easy at all, but maybe in 50, 100 years time, we will actually understand what's going on in the brain. Even when we do all that, the so-called hard problem is why does any of that lead, us, lead to us having an experience? Mm -hmm. And I guess what what happens as a result of that is we mistake our personal reality for physical reality. So we have this illusion, really, um, that we get wrapped up in. Yeah, yeah. We think we're actually experiencing the world itself, or what we're experiencing is our own inner world. And because it's so good and it's very useful i mean we need in a way we need to have that belief that we're actually seeing the world directly in order to navigate our way around to do things and it helps us survive but you know, one of the things that i think psychologists are always interested in is visual illusions because they show mm -hmm. this way we make up the world where it begins to break down we start seeing things which aren't actually there but they, they seem very real right and I I guess here it's important to point out a distinction that you make, um, which is that, you know, we aren't saying that subjective reality is an illusion. What we're talking about is um, the illusion, I guess, is confusing the subjective reality with, with the physical reality. Right, right. Yeah. That, that, that's a really important point because people say, 
oh, you know, the, the world is just an illusion. It's just Maya. It's just illusion. In fact, the word Maya means delusion. It's, mm. We delude ourselves when we think we're seeing the world directly. But the world out there is is very real. You know, you walk in front of a bus, it's going to hurt you, maybe kill you. Yeah. So the world, you know, the world is very real. But actually, the world isn't like like we see it, and we don't actually know what it's really like. You know, as I say, you know, light comes into the eye. We may see a red light. We may see red. All there is out there is light of a certain frequency. The light itself isn't red. The redness is just how it appears in consciousness. And in the end, all we can say is, you know, there is information out there. Right. And what we experience is how that information takes form in consciousness. Right. And so there are all of these, you know, perceived rules that are that that surround um, these perceptions that we're having and this reality that we perceive, which, you know, I guess is usually referred to as space-time reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so sp space and time are kind of inherent to consciousness. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. Sorry, do you want to expand on that? Well, yes, I mean, that's something, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. We think, we, you know, Science doesn't actually know what space and time are, particularly no. time. No, time is a huge mystery for science and why it goes one way and what it actually is. But it was, again, you mentioned Immanuel Kant, the philosopher earlier, who said, you know, all we ever know is our experience. And what he said, which I always found very interesting, he said, space and time are the scaffolding on which we construct our experience of reality. So it's like we have this information and then... It's like conscious space is space and time are actually inherent to consciousness. If you think about consciousness, you know, clearly it has time because our consciousness, what we're aware of, is always changing from one second to another second to another second. So clearly we experience time as in part of consciousness, but also space. I mean, all that we experience is like you could say it's the space of the mind. And, and so it's all happening in the space of the mind. And so in a way. And I think what Kant was saying is space and time are actually fundamental qualities of consciousness. And we yes. use those to actually model how we experience the world itself. Mm -hmm. And then I love how we take it back to science to try to understand um, questions of consciousness. And you point out that, you know, light violates these space-time constraints. And, you know, where does that take you? Oh, that takes you into fascinating worlds. Um, it needs a little explanation. It comes from Einstein's theory of special relativity, which, as people may have heard of, says that space and time aren't absolute, that they, they change depending on how fast you move. The faster you move, the more space seems to contract and time seems to slow down. And if you ever reach the speed of light, time would come to a standstill and space would contract in the distance of travel space would contract to nothing now physics doesn't worry about that because it says we can never travel at the speed of light so we don't have to worry about it but light travels at the speed of light and you know so if you look at the universe from light's point of view it is timeless and spaceless like light doesn't know space and time and I find it fascinating how we use the metaphor of light to talk about consciousness. We talk about, you know, the inner light, 
the light of consciousness or, or whatever it is, or enlightenment. We use the word light so yeah, much to talk about consciousness. And I think there's more than just a simple parallel of words there. I think there's some deep connection between the inner light of consciousness. We talk about it as the inner light, the inner light of consciousness and the outer light of the physical world. There's somehow deeply, deeply connected in ways that we may never understand. And what is interesting is in the physical world, space and time exist in the world of ordinary matter. But when you, I say when you get to the speed of light, they disappear. In the same way, in our own consciousness, we experience space and time when we're experiencing you know, the world of form. But when you go deep into meditation, you move into a state where time begins to just disappear. You know, people talk about that timeless, eternal, present moment where time disappears. And also, any sense of space disappears. So when we come back to that pure consciousness that we taste in meditation, we're also, in a way, stepping out of space and time. Which yeah. again, to me, there's, there's some fundamental connection here between light and consciousness, which we may never, we may never understand. One yeah. of the, it's actually beyond the human limits to understand, but it, there's right. something there that it's pointing to. And so when we experience the state of, um, I think what you would call samadhi in TM, or you know, the state of sort of eternal being, of, of presence, it is common to experience yourself as light, right? You know, you don't have this experience of space and time, and it sounds kind of very woo-woo and not scientific, but you really do kind of have this experience of being light and of everything being made of light. Um, yeah. And you're right. Like, I think there really is something to that. Yeah. That is a, it doesn't always happen, but that's a common experience of many meditators, that when the mind becomes silent, there is this sense of an inner light. It's not like... I think I think people are looking for some you know huge bright you know light that is you know like some mm. lights in the mind. It's not like that at all. It's just when the mind is very quiet, you realise there is this sense of consciousness is light. There's this, it's it's yeah. There's this light yeah. in the mind, but it's, it's not a light that is a form that's coming in. It's just like there is, it is light. It's fascinating. Yeah. And you also talk about how simple this is. I think a lot of people think that there is a lot of doing involved in having these types of experiences, in meditating, in, in, you know, reaching samadhi, which, you know, I guess from some angle is true. I mean, in your own case, you went to India, spent a lot of time there, and, you know, really dedicated yourself to it. But at its core, it, it is a simple practice. Right. And I think we make it difficult. I mean, mm. you say reaching samadhi. In, mm. in that there was this idea we are reaching somewhere we are going somewhere different we are attaining something we are going to reach this new bliss consciousness or whatever it is we are there is something we are going to achieve and i think that's that's the fundamental mistake what's what's happening in meditation is we're just we're allowing the mind to relax allowing the thinking mind to relax and we begin to experience how it is when when thought stops and we come back to that inner sense of stillness and quietness, mm -hmm. which is, as many traditions say, just knowing our own true nature. So we're not trying to get anywhere. And that's why I think the mistake is, and that's where a lot of practices come in. They're trying to get somewhere, trying to create something. It's the opposite. We're, we're letting go, not following normal thought patterns, but letting go of that 
and just settling back down into our own being, which is something that's always there. I mean, by our own being, it's that sense of I-ness, that sense of I am, which is always there. I mean, when I say that, I mean that sense, you know, the I that is, you know, experiencing this right now is the same I that was there yesterday, experiencing yesterday, 10 years ago in my ch childhood, that same sense of I, my my personality, my ego, all that stuff may have changed. It does change. But the sense of being an aware, conscious being never changes. That sense of being aware never changes. And that's what we're reconnecting with in a way. It's not we're achieving anything. We're reconnecting with that very basic sense of being. And most of the time, we, we're not aware of that because we're so engaged in what we're doing. We're engaged in our identity with the world that's appearing in our mind, that we, we overlook this very, very simple fact. And mm. it's when the mind becomes quiet that we begin to notice this quality of being, which is always there, but it was veiled by all the other activity that was going on. So you're mm. right, it is simple and it has to be simple because any, any doing, any trying is taking us away from it. Yeah. It's when we let go of any doing, let go of any trying, that we can begin to seek back into ourselves, seek back into our true nature. Mm -hmm. And there's this great quote a book from Science to God by the Maharishi. I just want to read it so um, they can have a try. Um, and, and it, uh, uh, mind is restless because it is seeking something, namely greater satisfaction and fulfillment. Looking in, in the wrong direction, in the world thinking, experience. Instead, turn inward and allow mind to settle. Mind is into greater stillness of its own accord. Um, and that's so perfectly put. And, you know, you recorded this online course, which you call Effortless Being, that really kind of breaks it down into simple steps. And, you know, it, it kind of gets right to the point, doesn't it? Yeah. And it is, it, it, it's effortless. It, yeah. You know, to seek our own being is effortless. And we will go there naturally. It's all our seeking to get somewhere that gets in the way. And not just in meditation, but, you know, in life, we're always trying to do something. And we take that, that pattern. It's almost like we're conditioned into the belief that the, the harder you try, the more you're going to succeed, which may be true in ordinary everyday life. But when it comes to allowing the mind to settle down into a state of quiet and come back to our own being, it doesn't work. Yeah, you know, no. if it's not happening, it's because you're you're trying too hard, or even trying. So it's really about, as I say, letting the mind relax and getting rid of all effort. When we take out all effort, it's like, ah, yes, here I am. I mean, another way I talk about it's like coming home. We, mm -hmm. we come back, ourselves. we come home to our our own selves, mm -hmm. and then we, as you know, many teachings have said, you know, it's a place we never left. Yeah. So it's, not that we're trying to get somewhere else. We're returning home. We've always been here, but our attention has been out on the world of doing stuff. Right. So you're also um, a, a, a futurist and spend a lot of time talking and thinking about, um, you know, what it means um, when a greater number of people start to have this understanding, right, of returning home. Um, and what that means when science and religion 
and you know the exploration of consciousness all start to kind of con converge on this realization. Um, what what do you think that means, and where do you think we are in that process? That's fascinating. Um, yeah, I see. I see the exploration of consciousness is really the bridge between science and spirit. You know, as I said earlier, you know, science science really has science has ignored consciousness pretty much. It thinks yeah. it's something out of the brain and sooner or later we'll understand it which i which i think we'll never do and in a way i think classical religion has also ignored individual consciousness it's been much more outer directed in terms of you know if you do this do that you will have some contact with some other being deity or something and again it, it hasn't been geared back towards looking inside at the nature of our own consciousness, except in you know the more mystical traditions, yes, but yeah. in classical religion. So I see when we really begin to look deeply into what is the nature of consciousness, then that sort of divide between science and religion will begin to disappear. And, and then I think, I think that's when the world, that's when the world begins to change, because I think you know, in some ways, society is is always trying to improve itself. It's always trying to is look looking for a better world, but it's looking like what do we do out there to make a better world? And I think what all the great spiritual teachings are pointed to is where we go wrong is a very fundamental thing inside ourselves, whereby we get caught in a very materialist, egocentric consciousness, which leads us to you know, behave in self-centered ways which aren't good for the world. When yeah. we dis when you discover that inner sense of being, the ego loses its grip. The ego is there, you know, trying to prove you're somebody, etc. When you come home and you notice, ah, here I am, that that seeking begins to soften and dissolve. I think that's what's really important for the world. So I think you know, when the two come together, then I think the world of science, the materialistic world, will begin to realize the great wisdom that is there in the, in the world's traditions and mm -hmm. more in the mystical world, and begin to take that seriously and apply that wisdom and begin to begin to really value the just to really value that sinking back, whether through meditation or whatever, that coming back yeah. to our own nature will become increasingly recognized as being really important for the world. And so do you think that convergence starts to happen more from people turning inward more, or perhaps from, you know, scientists that are at the fore turning inward, or more from kind of the limitations of science being laid bare, or, you know, maybe some combination of the two? I, I think it's a combination of those, um, a number of things. I mean, I think, you know, the number of people who are, you know, exploring their own consciousness now is just is growing at an exponential rate compared to where it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, now when meditation becomes, you know, the cover of Time magazine is becoming mainstream. So, you know, our whole society is beginning to take it seriously. And, you know, amongst that are our scientists who are beginning to explore their own inner experience. Mm -hmm. But also this this problem, the hard problem we were talking about earlier, is leading a growing number of philosophers and you know, neuroscientists to um, sort of look at the, the possibility 
that consciousness may be fundamental to the cosmos. Yeah. It doesn't arise out of the brain. And even, even 10 years ago, five years ago, that was seen to be a really radical, strange idea which was poo-pooed by you know, the establishment. But just in the last few years, that's becoming, it's not mainstream yet, it's not mainstream, yeah. but there's a growing number of people who are, you know, the scientific explorers of consciousness who are coming to the conclusion that that may be what it is, that consciousness is actually fundamental to the cosmos. Yeah. Um, and which is what, again, which is what a, great, a lot of the great spiritual teachers have said, that, you know, the universe is conscious, the universe is aware. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to point out that I, I I think it's interesting how there was this generation of scientists that included people like you know Einstein, Niels Bohr, Max Planck, you know Schrödinger that seemed to be on the right track with this. You know, with this idea that consciousness might be fundamental. And then there was this generation that came after them that kind of went back to materialism pretty hard. Um, and like you kind of wonder, you know, what happened there and like what's going to turn it back. And I guess, you know, you have some hope that that might be starting to happen. But I, yeah. I, I just think that it's interesting yeah. how that's evolved. Yes. And it's interesting, you know, that the people who are exploring this, you find them continually quoting, you know, Niels Bohr, Max Planck, Schrodinger, yeah. Stein. And I think almost all those great physicists back in the early 20th century, they were all seeing that consciousness is somehow fundamental to the world of physics. And then I think what happened was the, the success of modern physics in terms of what it could do in the world yeah. uh, took over and we forgot about that. You know, we forget, yeah. you know, the transistor, you know, the transistor radios remember coming along in the 60s. The transistor is a quantum thing. It's a yeah. bit of quantum physics. And now, you know, all our computers, they're all quantum machines. And we're so... We're so engaged, when I say quantum machines, I mean, they've all got little tight in their circuits, the microchips are actually working according to quantum physics. Yeah. So we've got so enamored by all the things we, all the things that quantum physics leads to that we've, we've pushed that stuff onto the back shelf. And I think yeah. we accept it now. It was in those days, a hundred years ago, people were just absolutely fascinated by what it was saying. But as I say, more and more people are now coming and saying, wow, you know, this is what Schrodinger was saying. This is what Niels Bohr was saying. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, so, you know, we're very much shaped by kind of what, you know, society and pop culture is currently experiencing. Um, and so let's take it back to kind of what we're all currently experiencing, you know, this global pandemic with COVID-19. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and what it might mean and what some of the lasting implications of this might be. I've asked that question a lot. I'm being asked that question a lot. I have to say, I have no idea. No. I mean, we, are, we are in such uncertain times. I think it would be foolhardy to predict where this is going. Yeah. I think my hope is, along with, I know a lot of people, that this, this will be the trigger we need to really get come to our senses about how we live, about society, and what's important. And my hope is on the other side, we will have a much um, wiser, fairer, egalitarian society that where, where the values have shifted. That, that's my hope, whether it will or not. Yeah. I find, 
I find it just fascinating in the extent to which people are communicating these days, you know, much more than they were before this happened. And people are caring for each other and contacting each other. How are you doing? That sort of thing. Right. So I don't know. But the one thing I think, you know, the question I come up with is how do we, how do we cope with the uncertainty, the fact we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to move into increased change. And for me, I like to draw the analogy of what happens to trees in a storm. I see we're, we're approaching a storm of change. You know, trees have to be stable. They have to be rooted in the ground. And that's the first thing I think we need. We need to be stable in ourselves, which means you know, rooted in our own being. Yeah. So that thrown around by every unexpected change or every new, you know, whatever it is, worrying news article that comes along, we don't go, oh, my God, what's happening? Oh, it was like, right. okay. Stay cool, stay calm, collected. That, that's important. But also trees need to be flexible. They need to be able to bend and sway with the wind. And I think for that, for that, this means we have to be flexible in our thinking, not be rigid. Oh, this is the way I always did things. We're going to be asked to be creative and do things in new ways and let go of old assumptions. Mm -hmm. so, and that, again, the more connected we are with our own being, I think the easier we can do that, the more creative, the more flexible we can become. It's right. only when we're caught in a certain mindset that we lose that flexibility. So I think what this is doing is really asking you know, each and every one of us to really do our own inner work, to mm -hmm. come back to yeah, that own inner exploration, coming back to being in ourselves. And right. it's paradoxically or fortuitously maybe more, you know, many of us are being being given the opportunity to do that. We're, you know, told stay home, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so we can stay home and watch Netflix, yeah. or we can stay home and meditate. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a it's a great challenge and piece of practice for folks that maybe have had an inner practice to kind of stay with that and to reconnect with with being. Um, and for maybe some people that haven't, maybe it's, you know, a catalyst for some sort of awakening. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it can be challenging to establish a practice when, you know, your sense of anxiety is elevated, you feel yeah. stressed, you know, yeah. you, you, you feel fearful because fear is really a, a response to not being okay with uncertainty, right? Like, we don't know how this is going to turn out, right? That's, that's the reality of it. And so fear and, is like a natural thing to have come up. Right. Well, fear comes up when we start imagining yes. outcomes. And Worst that's the case mind, scenario. mind yeah. taking over, imagining, oh, this might happen or that might happen. And, you know, I think 90% of our fears never actually happen, but we just make ourselves more tense and stressed thinking about them. So we need to, we need to recognize that, recognize when we're getting caught up in some imagined story and be able to, you know, pause, just pause and step back, you know, just come back to the present moment. Okay? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you, you mentioned people who don't have a practice. You mentioned earlier, you know, the course that I did that you're now, you know, yeah. effortless being. Effortless being. Yeah, that's, you know, what I did there was six, six basic sessions on mm -hmm. explaining this, the essence of this and how we can, you know, develop a practice that allows us just to, come yeah. back ourselves. It's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah.
So, uh, well, this has been uh, very productive, Peter. Thanks for this. Um, so, um, folks, check out or go check out all of Peter's books, which I mentioned at the top of the show. Um, check out his online course, Effortless Being. Um, be sure to share this up if you found it helpful. Give us a like, leave a comment. We'll try to respond. Um, Peter, thanks again for your time. Pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Likewise.